Oh, good morning. It's good to see you all. Appreciate you being here for Line by Line. You're a sight for sore eyes. It's just very good to see you. It's very good to be back in this room. And uh, we pray with thanksgiving every time we have the opportunity. And the pandemic has not changed the fact that it is a miracle, a God-given gift every time we gather together. It's just accentuated it made something precious appear even more precious to us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are just incredibly thankful that we get to sit together in one place, joined by others who cannot be with us in person but are with us by other means, and then we have the extraordinary privilege of opening your book and hearing you speak. Father, you by grace made us. You, by grace, made us creatures to know you, and by your mercy, you spoke to us. Father, we receive your word as an unspeakable gift. We open it with a sense of awe and majesty and excitement and gratitude. May its truth burst forth ever fresh. Amen. We're in John chapter 15 as we continue through our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, it's been interrupted by circumstances, but that's all right. That's one of the reasons why a line-by-line -line study, just going text-by-text, text, is incredibly profitable and has been through the history of the Christian church. When John Calvin was expelled from Geneva, and then when they begged him to come back, he came back and picked up on the very next verse where he had left in the pulpit uh, there in Geneva. Remarkable commitment to exposition and a remarkable confidence in the Word of God. That which has been taught has been planted. Not even the enemy can pluck it up out of the hearts of true believers. And uh, thus we continue. Now, by the time we reach John chapter 15, we are in what is known as the farewell discourse of Jesus. And we've talked about that. This is the this is the portion of the Gospel of John in which Jesus is approaching the cross, and he is in Jerusalem with his disciples. His arrest is imminent. These are his last words before he shall be taken from them. He wants to tell them certain things that he wants them both to know and to remember uh, as these events unfold. And he also wants to encourage them such that they will not be crushed and, and thus they will not be uh, cowering in fear. Fear would be the natural response of what would happen with the arrest of Jesus. This is something that, that we, we miss, but it's easy to understand if you think about it in any other context. You have someone who is basically being arrested as, a, as, as an infidel, as a traitor, and as a subversive, a threat to the temple in Jerusalem. It is not merely he who would be in danger of arrest, but the entire movement. And Rome knows how to deal with such movements. Uh, Rome knows how to deal with sedition. Rome knows how to deal with insurrection. And it's not just Rome in this case, it's the Jewish authorities. Uh, because the Jewish authorities are functioning in two different ways. Number one, they are the keepers of Judaism. Now, that becomes rather important because they are revealed to be more concerned about keeping Judaism uh, than about uh, hearing God's word and receiving the promise of the Messiah. Uh, they are, as the Apostle Paul will say, they are more committed to their traditions uh, than they are to the truth. The second role they play is that they are the vassals of, 
of Rome. So Rome has a deal in the provinces, and it's a pretty easy deal to understand, and it's, it, it's just the same empire by empire. The deal with the provincials is this. We won't, we won't rule as brutally as we might if you locals keep things under control. And so uh, in Judea and in what the Romans called Palestine, uh, they had lots of vassals. They had vassal kings, such as Herod, and they had uh, vassal legislatures even, such as the Sanhedrin. And so long as they could keep peace, and as long as the taxes keep flowed, flowing, then, uh, then, then Rome was fine. But that means that treason and uh, blasphemy and, uh, and heresy as accused of Jesus well, it turns out that thus has both political and theological criminality attached to it. The, the, the accusations made against Jesus are both political and theological. To the Jews, they're mostly theological. To the Romans, they're mostly political. Nonetheless, the disciples of Jesus would have every reason to believe that they would be next, and that the Jesus movement, we might just call it, this this band of Jesus and his disciples could just be wiped out. Jesus is telling them that's not going to happen. And in the, the text we've already seen, he's been very specific, that's not going to happen. You are attached to me as branches to a vine. And so long as you abide in me and I in you, then you're safe. There's much more to it than being safe, but that's a, that's a large part of it. Jesus talked to them about his expectations, about obeying his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And, and he tied himself to the prophecy of the Old Testament, made very clear the uh, redemptive purpose for which he had come. He's told them a lot. But in this last section of John chapter 15, there are some particularly apt words for us right now in the year of our Lord 2021. And the best thing for us to do is just to read these verses together, to hear them as a unit as the disciples might well have heard them. They definitely would have heard Jesus speak this. We're reading it and then reading it aloud. But let's just hear these two paragraphs as a unit and, and see what Jesus is saying. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, 
he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. If the world hates you. Now, it's an interesting passage for so many reasons. Certainly, I think the, the urgency of it, the, the application of it hits us if the world hates you. But the word if is something we can hang on to there, right? Because it doesn't appear as the text begins that it's necessarily true that the world's going to hate us, just a, it might. And, uh, and if, if the world should hate you, then this is what follows. So if, if the world hates you, then you better listen carefully. The problem is the text shifts. And it, it shifts from if the world hates you to when the world hates you. Jesus is speaking to the disciples in this farewell discourse, and the time is short, so there's an economy of words. But it turns out that the if doesn't last very long because the if turns into a when. Eventually, the world is going to hate you. And then you'll notice that there is a three-dimensionality to the pattern of hate that Jesus speaks of here. It, it, it is vertical. So Jesus says that if they hated me, they're going to hate you because you're mine. Now, just think of the vine and the branches. How can You can't hate the vine and not the vine's branches. It just doesn't work. If, if, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. But there's a verticality to it because Jesus says if they hate me, they also hate the Father. So Jesus is saying, look, eventually the theology is going to be apparent. People are going to figure this out. And of course, we understand that we are attached to the vine. We are in Christ only by the Father's grace and mercy. So eventually people are going to figure out that if, you, if you're going to hate the Son, you're going to have to hate the Father and you have to hate those who belong to the Son. Now, one of the ways you can hate the Father is by blaspheming and saying that the Father is not the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is not His Son. I still hope to write an article on things I learned uh, from Larry King. I haven't had much time to, to do that in the last several days, but I'd like to. I was on that program more than 40 times, and I did learn a lot from Larry King. A uh, very fascinating person. Uh, definitely one of the world's most gifted conversationalists. There are people in this room who are so young, they probably just, they may not know who Larry King was or may not have seen him much. But Larry King was the, was the, the nation's conversationalist. And the Larry King show, primetime, on CNN, had the biggest audience of any such program in history. Mary and I grew up hearing Larry King's voice because he was on WIOD radio in Miami. And uh, so if, uh, if you were in your car and you were listening to the radio, WIOD was a clear channel station coming out of Miami down in South Florida, you heard Larry King. And I found Larry King interesting because he did something others didn't do. He had guests, same way he did on his television program. And so you could listen to the Larry King program late at night and you never know who you're going to hear. Uh, I was on the Larry King program the first time because of action taken by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1999. I found myself in a studio and 
Bozeman, Montana, Mary and the kids very indulgent. We were supposed to be on vacation, but got the call from the producer. We ended up, we were supposed to be in Yellowstone. That was the promise, but uh, we had to go around Yellowstone at first to get to Bozeman, Montana in order for me to do this program to defend uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's doctrinal position. Well, the first thing I learned about being on Larry King was that you had to speak up or you were dead. And uh, Larry was always very respectful to me. At one point, I was on the program like two times in a week, and he actually hilariously introduced me as our own Reverend Albert Moeller. Always called me Reverend, which I did not like, but I understood was the rules of the, uh, of the game. The reason I don't like it is because I'm a Baptist, and we don't think anybody's Reverend. I can remember we had a pastor and. Fort Lauderdale, who had on his sign the right reverend such-and-so, and my pastor used to say the not reverend such-and-so, but nonetheless. One of the things I learned from Larry King is that, uh, again, you have to speak up, you have to be clear. The first time I was on uh, the Larry King program, Jerry Falwell was on, and uh, Robert Schuler, and there were several others. It was a left-right kind of thing. And uh, I, uh, I just tried to learn, you know, as I was a young man, just trying to learn how, how you get into a conversation like this. And uh, I learned pretty quickly, you go for the kill. You know, you got, you've got a few seconds to start out, it's got to be strong. I was on it not long after that with Jesse Jackson. And uh, one of the things I learned from Larry King is you don't let conversation take place off mic that needs to take place on mic. So if you, if you had several guests, he would not allow us to talk to one another during commercial breaks because he might say something that actually was value for his program and that he, it only works if it happens the first time. So he would shut down the mics. But uh, after the program, we could still talk to one another. And Jesse Jackson turned to me one time and he said, hey, Rev, he said, uh, you're not doing this right. And I said, well, uh, what do you mean? And he said, you're, uh, you're just answering Larry's questions. And I was thinking, well, that's actually why I think I'm on the program. But Jesse Jackson had a point he wanted to make, and he always made it. And he said, you got other things you want to say. He said, just answer Larry's question, then go on saying what you want to say till he cuts off the mic. That actually some of the best advice I ever had. I did that from then on, and Larry respected it. So that was just it. Thank you, Jesse Jackson. You know, you, you just answer his question, and you just keep going. And Larry, that reminds me of the doctrine of sanctification. You know, you just, you just go on and do, and do what you want to do. But the interesting thing about Larry King uh, is that, and he was married eight times to seven women, so do the math. That, that's, that's unusual for a Baptist, Southern Baptist pastor minister, talk to a lot of people who've been married eight times to seven women. It was a, just kind of a wreck of a life. Arrested for grand larceny at one point. You know, just had comeback after comeback. Just a fascinating figure. But he was, uh, he was an agnostic Jewish man. And I was on so often talking about the gospel, and I would just, I, I just would do my very best to get, make a beeline to the gospel. I mean, they're, they're, that, that's what I want to talk about. So there's Put this in a gospel context. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm talking about. He did several long programs with Billy Graham in which Billy Graham talked to him over and over again about the gospel and in very personal terms as they developed a friendship. He had other Christian ministers on. All of us got to talk to him. He had a very 
very great interest in the afterlife, but he wasn't sure there was one. And uh, then he did an interview, not long before he died, in which he was uh, asked about having God as a guest. And Larry King said, uh, I'd take God as a guest. I'd get him booked, uh, sure enough. And the first question I would ask him is, hey, God, do you have a son? Such a heartbreaking question. I can understand the historical background of someone who's basically an agnostic Jewish person wanting to ask that question. If God does have a son, this is a part of the logic of the New Testament. If God does have a son, God does have a son. Then the father defines himself by the son. If you have one son, and of course, Jesus himself would describe his own mission in this way. Jesus would describe his own identity in this way. He would even tell a parable about uh, wicked workers who kill the son of the, of the vineyard owner. But if, if God does have a son, and God does have a son, then he defines himself in the son. And if the son has disciples, then he defines himself in these disciples. And, and all of this means that in a passage such as we're reading from John chapter 15, the son is fulfilling the father's purposes. But the father's purpose is not only that he suffer on the cross in a substitutionary atonement and accomplish the full penalty for sin for those who would believe. He also, he also would rise from the dead, but he also is redeeming a people, a church. And what we're, what we're looking at here with the disciples is the church. This is what I want us to see. God does have a son, yes, and his son has a church. Fascinating things. One of my favorite quotes from John Calvin, and it's, uh, it, it was in the heat of theological conflict. And uh, uh, so, so, God does have a son, and the son has a church. That's a very important formula for Christians to remember. God has a son, and the son has a church. So, in, uh, in John Calvin's debates with Cardinal Sadoletto, and it was a white-hot debate of the Reformation. And, and Sadoletto is a very wise, smart Catholic uh, debate opponent for Calvin. They, they, were, uh, they were quite a pair in this, in this great debate. And Cardinal Sadoletto had all the arguments of the tradition of the, Christian, of the Catholic Church, the tradition of the Catholic Church. And so he could say when things began, when things ended, you know, what the, who, what, what the church did under the dispensation of its magisterial authority and the tradition and, and on and on and on. He had all that. Calvin's just got the Bible, which is the point. And, and so in this debate, which is uh, just, again, fascinating at every turn, at one point, Cardinal Sadoletto thinks he has boxed Calvin into the ultimate Protestant problem. And that is the fact that the Catholics argued that Luther and Calvin and the magisterial reformers argued that the church didn't exist until the Reformation because the Catholic Church is a false church. So, so Cardinal Sadoletto thinks he has Calvin right where, he, right where he wants him, and he says, Mr. Calvin, 
Where was your church before Geneva? Calvin answered, Ah, oh, Cardinal, Jesus Christ, from eternity past to eternity infinite, has always had his church. And it's one of those answers you think, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Did Calvin answer that so correctly? He's always had his church. It's been in his salvific purpose in the very beginning. His salvific purpose sovereignly will be achieved. Jesus Christ has never been without his church. And by the way, that's the sense in which the New Testament speaks, in two senses, where, where Jesus will speak of the church as those who are in him, who are his. He claims them as his even before he dies on the cross. They're already his, and they're forever his. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But here in John chapter 15, you'll notice he begins, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So there's that, that verticality. And, and the first thing he says is, if the world hates you, just understand it's not about you. That's a good thing for us to know. When the world hates us, it's not about us. Now, if we're actually found guilty of following Christ faithfully, then it's not about us. Now, it can be about us. It can be about us if we violate Jesus's commands. We can we can bring outrage upon ourselves and judgment upon ourselves and upon our church by things we ought not to have done. But the central offense of belonging to Christ, well, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, the temporality of this is very important because even the, the gospel of John begins this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And was God. It's just really, it's really important to understand that uh, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A lot there. I mean, just, just, just notice for one thing, the absolutely direct, plain, simple, economic declaration of election. It's, it's just right there. Uh, I chose you out of the world. All the initiative here is identified with Christ himself. If they hate you, it's because they hated me first. I chose you out of this world because you are not of this world. But the larger context of that verse is that the world loves you if you love the world. If you belong to them, if you are conformed, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, if, if you are conformed to this world, then the world loves you. That's, that's what the world does. The world is one giant engine of conformity. And, 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 and by the way, it is always and in every case a giant engine of conformity. Even so-called non-conformity is a part of the pattern of conformity. What are you talking about? Sounds idiotic. Well, let's just take, I'll get something from my lifetime okay, the uh, student rebellion of the 60s. And so uh, you had the, their fathers were the infamous men in the gray flannel suits. You know, just the, the little ticky-tock, ticky-tock houses that they lived in, according to one of the songs of the 60s, and their little ticky-tock, ticky-tock jobs, you know, paper here, paper there, sell this, sell that. And these uh, teenagers and young adults in the student revolution of the 60s said, we don't want any of that, down with the man, 
and uh, they're going to be nonconformists. All right. So, uh, but my point is, remember that every cultural system is a system of producing conformity. Every world system is. Every fallen world system, that's the way a fallen world works. But even in the student rebellion of the 60s, yeah, they rebelled, but first of all, they rebelled against something. So that something was still there as that which, against which they rebelled. And then also, they, uh, they conformed. Famous sitcom during the 1960s and 70s, mostly the 70s, was called All in the Family. Central character was Archie Bunker. Anyone my age knew Archie very well. Sometimes we lived in a house with Archie. He was the, uh, the blue-collar worker everyman, and uh, he was played brilliantly by uh, Carol O'Connor. And uh, some of his lines from the All in the Family program have endured uh, because they, they mean a great deal if you understand cultural analysis. So for one thing, uh, Archie had a, a daughter and uh, she was married to one of the student radicals and uh, Archie both loved him and just hated him because of the student rebellion. He was everything Archie wanted and he called him meathead. And they would get into fiery arguments that became kind of the substance of the program. And in one argument, uh, Meathead is lecturing Archie on uh, the meaninglessness of his life and the meaninglessness of his job. You know, he works at a factory. We don't know exactly what Archie ever did, but he, he, he wore the same clothes. He obviously was a blue-collar worker down at the plant, down at the plant, down, down at the shop. And uh, we never knew exactly what he did, but we knew the type. And uh, Meathead is telling him how meaningless all this is and all the rest, and about the student uprising and how glorious this is and how freedom's going to break out and all the rest, and how they are absolute nonconformists. And then Archie shot at him these words. He says, well, then how come all you nonconformists look alike? And there was tremendous insight into that. You know, the hippies all looked like one another. If a hippie showed up in a three-piece suit, that would have been nonconformity. As long as they showed up with, uh, you know, tie-dyed T-shirts and jeans and feathers in their hair or something, you know, and well, then they're just conforming. And eventually they would just conform because eventually they had to get jobs, and the next thing you knew, they were working for IBM and uh, wearing the IBM uniform. It just goes on and on. The world is one giant system of bringing about conformity. And by the way, the world has to. I mean, if the world's going to work according to the world's terms, that's the way it's got to work, whether it's producing... Uh, you know, Americans, or it's producing, uh, you know, comrade citizens of the Soviet Union, or it's producing anything. The, uh, the world only works if there is a, a basic understanding of the way the world is to work. You rebel against that way, and you bring the enemy of the regime upon you. This is what happened to Jesus. And Jesus makes an extremely profound statement for all of us, which is eventually you will have to face the regime. Now, I want to tell you, you can figure this out real quickly. Uh, Christians in our time, uh, we already face, I think the word persecution in the United States would be badly used because when there are people losing their heads for the sake of Christ, we ought not to claim persecution. But there is a marginalization that is taking place. There's a, there is an effort to try to shut down even um, uh, Christian uh, truth-telling. And uh, 
There's an effort to bring about conformity, even executive orders in the last several days, you know, just, uh, you know, on, on issues of uh, LGBTQ, abortion, you go down the list, um, this is what's going to be tolerated, this is not what's going to be tolerated. And eventually, eventually, we won't dwell on this long, but if you're going to dare hold to a biblical understanding of marriage, sexuality, gender, personal identity, sin, uh, then we're going to find ourselves in an extremely difficult position. Not a, an extremely difficult position as if we were in Yemen as believers, believing the same things, but it's going to be a very difficult thing. And I, I'm, I'm in a major project right now trying to figure out how social change gets translated down to the individual level. And uh, one, of the most, one of the most powerful ways in which this happens is just to threaten the loss of social status if you don't go along. And, and that's just incredibly powerful. And it shows up incredibly young. You know, it used to be that we worried about high school students and peer pressure. Now we worry about, in fact, New York Times had an article this week on the fact that uh, middle school has become the absolute crucible for uh, this kind of uh, catastrophe of peer culture and, and uh, what, what, what this means. It's both necessary and very dangerous. And then some of the same researchers are saying, yes, but we're seeing the same thing now amongst ninth, uh, nine and ten-year-olds. You know, this is how fast this is happening. And uh, reminds me of a Christian family that told me not too long ago, a family was in California, that uh, their children, even elementary school age children, were picking up, not only at school, but even just from the neighborhood, uh, judgment against conservative Christianity. I mean, they're picking it up, and these, you know, these are kids who ought to be out just uh, swinging on the swing. That's how this works. And when it comes to the disciples of Jesus Christ, you look through history, there have been disciples who have been hated by the world unto death. There have been Christians who have been hated by the world unto loss of jobs. That's not the same thing. But it's, just, it's the same pattern. There have been uh, Christians hated by the world to the point that believing Christians could not participate in the services of the regime. And, uh, and I'm not just talking about its military, I'm talking about it, for instance, its universities. If uh, you take what kind of oaths were required, say, under the Third Reich or uh, under the Soviet Union. And, and you say, well, yeah, that's the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. Yeah, but on, on the, uh, the uh, diversity affirmative statements that are being required of those who would enter some colleges and universities right now, you have to positively say things that are absolutely in conflict with biblical truth. Jesus says, though, that if, if they hate you, they hated me first. And, and then he continues, remember the word that I said to you in verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So there's an interesting little twist. So the first thing is here is if, uh, if, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That's easy to understand. But then he says, if they kept my word, they will keep your word too. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus flatly accuses them of misrepresenting his words. And this will happen in his confrontation with Pilate. So 
this is one of the things we're going to have to face. We're going to have to face the fact that we say, uh, God, in creation, has given us marriage as the union of a man and a woman. And it can only be the union of a man and a woman. And we believe this because the creator God of the universe who made us in his image and made the world for us and established the goodness of creation has, has told us this. Well, what you're saying is you hate gay people. No, that's not what we said. That's, that's not what we said. But that's the kind of thing we're going to have to face. In other words, the world twisted Jesus' words. The world's going to twist our words. A servant is not greater than his master. That's a very good thing for us to remember. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So again, Jesus says, let's, let's, let's face it, they're going to do this to you, but it's because of me, or it's because of my name, which means in his authority, because they do not know him who sent me. And again, there's that verticality. So to deny Christ is, is, is not merely to deny Christ, but to deny the Father, to... To malign the disciple is to malign the Savior, which is to malign the Father. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. But right before that, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, you can't, can't take that out of context. Jesus isn't saying that if he hadn't come, they would not be guilty of murder, disobedience to parents, stealing, theft, covetousness. I mean, let's look at the Ten Commandments. They, they'd received the law, but they had not received the way, the life, and the truth. So it's a particular guilt that they bear now. It's the guilt of denying the Messiah. And, and now, having been taught by him of who he is, and they rejecting that, well, now they're guilty of that sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. If I had not done the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me both me and my Father. So the miracles become condemnation too, the, the signs as John characteristically calls them. So again, you look at this and you say, well, not only did he give them words, he gave them signs. And in the background to this text is the entirety of the Gospel of John, of course, and beyond that, the Scripture, the Law and the Prophets. But in, in the, the, the close background to this text is John chapter 9. And uh, it's going to become very clear because of the fact that it was in John chapter 9, you recall, where we were told that the parents of the man who'd been born blind but received a sight, they, they refused to speak for him because they were afraid of the Jews, because the Jews had determined that if anyone followed Jesus, they were to be put out of the synagogue, which is effectively uh, kicked out of Judaism. It's effectively exiled, denationalized. And that's going to come up in, in the text. But what's in the background there in John chapter 9 is this healing. This is going right up, right up until this. It's all in one sequence. Remember, Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem when this happens. And so Jesus heals the man born blind. He was known to have been born blind. 
And the Pharisees are infuriated by it. And it, it's just the classic example right there in the ninth chapter of John of the fact that you could have God in human flesh come amongst humanity and do what only God the Creator could do. Because in, in John 9, just remember we pointed out, it's the recapitulation of creation, which is exactly what the blind man understands. He was made out of mud by the Father, as was Adam. Jesus took mud, put it on his eyes, go wash at the pool of Siloam. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. Only, the, 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 the point is that the, the, the man who was blind and now sees, who of course, theologically as well as physically, but part of what he sees is, is that only the one who made humanity could make me see. Well, you see the logic of that coming into this passage. Jesus did the things which only God could do, and still they didn't believe. In verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's actually twice in the Psalms, uh, the 35th Psalm and the 69th Psalm. David was hated without a cause. Uh, to be king is to be hated. Uh, to be leading anything is at some point to be, uh, at the very least, opposed. To have people angry for what you've done. Now, maybe what you did was right, maybe what you did was wrong. But in the case of David, it's a slander against the throne, and he's God's anointed. And David was hated without a cause. Well, that's what's going to happen to Christians. Christians are going to be hated without a cause. But ultimately, this is not about us yet. This is about Jesus. He was hated without a cause. The cross, the, the cross is the example of what it is to be hated without a cause. Let's be clear. Jesus was not guilty of heresy. Jesus was not guilty of treason. Jesus was not guilty of insurrection. He was hated without a cause. He was crucified without a cause. Even Pilate understood that he was being crucified without a cause. But if they hated David, paradigmatic, and they hated Jesus, then they will also hate us without a cause. And that's a very sobering realization. Because it's one thing to be hated for a cause. Maybe you can fix it. Maybe there's something we can do about it. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. But to be hated without a cause means they hate you because they choose to hate you. It doesn't even take a cause. But notice the shift here that comes in that next paragraph, the very last words of John chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Just a quick reminder, the chapter and verse divisions are not in the original text of Scripture. So there's nothing infallible or inerrant about the chapter and verse divisions. Uh, they were put in in order that after the Reformation, people in the pews could find the same text together. It certainly has simplified things. 
And uh, Robert Stefanos, a uh, student of Calvin, one of the ones who had major input uh, in putting in the chapter and verse divisions, about 1551, 1552. Uh, I'm, I treasure one of his working pages, which I own and have in my library, in which you can see where he's working out the chapter and verse divisions. And he, he often does a very good job. He usually does a very good job. But frankly, uh, we have to remember that they're only divisions numerically so that we can find the text because John didn't write chapters and, you know, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch as chapters, so anything like that is arbitrary. But you do ask the question, why would these verses end one chapter rather than begin another chapter? And sometimes you say, well, that, that's a question I'm not sure we can answer. Robert Stephanus did this, at least part of it, on the back of a horse. Who knows? But it is interesting to forget the chapters and the numbers for a minute and just ask, well, how is it that we get from they hated me without a cause to, but when the Helper comes, who I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Well, those two things have to be as Jesus gave them to us in immediate proximity. Jesus has begun by saying, if the world hates you, then when the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you, it hates me, but it hates the Father. I, they hated what I said, they hated what I did, the works that I performed. They're now guilty of sin because they hated both me and my Father. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. Um, won't get into the great schism between Eastern and Western Christianity and the Philoque uh, clause and whether the Spirit is, proceeds from both the Father and the Son, which I believe to be true, along with Western Christianity, or merely from the Father, as in Eastern Christianity, because it is the Son who sins. It becomes very clear, but nonetheless, this is the text the Eastern Church grasps upon little footnote, don't pause there for long. The point is that Jesus is sending the Helper, whom we will know as the Holy Spirit in just a matter of a few verses. He's sending us the Helper because we're helpless. In this context, if we're hated, when we're hated, why we're hated, where we're hated, if Jesus was hated without a cause, then we will be hated without a cause, then what chance do we have? What's the likelihood Jesus' motley little band is going to make it even a few short years, much less a generation, much less millennia? <laughs> well, we need a helper. And one of the things we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit is we need a helper without and within. We need a helper in here because we desperately need the indwelling Holy Spirit lest we die. And, but we also need the Holy Spirit in the church. All of us together in the Spirit. Jesus says when the helper comes and then immediately says because I'm going to send him from the Father and he'll proceed from the Father he'll bear witness about me. Okay, that's why the proximity is so important. It's because it's so, there's so much here, it's easy to see the, when the helper comes, 
because I sent him and he proceeds from the Father. Okay, just don't, don't, don't focus there, but just for a minute, link together, they hated me without a cause, he will bear witness about me. That's really important together. They hated me without a cause. He will bear witness about me. The they hated me without a cause is so, is so massive a hate. It's so, it's so comprehensive a rejection. He came into his own and his own received him not. That the believers turn out to be the exception. He came into his own, but his own believed him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. Something's going to have to explain why anybody sees. Someone's going to have to explain how anybody believes. Something's going to have to explain how anybody stays. Something's going to have to explain how any of us survive. Something's going to have to explain how truth is recognized by the church, the truth most importantly about Christ, lest we become just like those who are his enemies. Something's going to have to explain how the church lives and survives and how the church knows what the church knows. And that solitary explanation is going to be the Holy Spirit. And that solitary explanation is an all-sufficient explanation, as Jesus will make clear in the chapters following. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, and notice that too, the Spirit of truth is how the Holy Spirit is defined. I was hated without a cause, they rejected me, but here comes the Spirit of truth. He will bear witness about me. And then the next verse, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. This is like another form of the Great Commission right here. We will bear witnesses. In this passage, it's not go into all the world and make disciples, go into all the nations. At this point, it's simply you will be my witnesses. Where you find Christians, where you find a Christian church, you find witness. Outside the church, they hated me without a cause. Inside the church, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Turns out that makes all the difference not only in time, but in eternity. Turns out we're insufficient for this. We can only make it as far as the disciples have made it here because they are branches attached to the vine who is Christ. We're only here because we are branches attached to Christ. We're only here and the church has only survived and here we are gathered together in this Lord's Day in the year 2021 because the Helper has come. And we are able to do what we just did in opening the Word of God and studying it together because He has borne witness. So praise be to the Holy Spirit of God. Praise be to Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise be to the Father who sent the Son.